Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We have a returning guest today. Alex, who have we got? We do. We have Andrew Chatterton with us from the Coles Hill Auxiliary Research Team, CART, who joined us a few weeks back to give us an excellent, bonkers uh, rundown of the British resistance and and how they were going to uh, resist, funnily enough, a Nazi invasion of our wonderful little island. And it was brilliant, but... We didn't finish the whole story because we talked about one group, but not the other, didn't we, Andrew? That's correct. Yeah, there's a whole other side of... Bonkersness. Craziness, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, we love crazy shit on this podcast. So we invited you back. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, very well. How are you? I love the way everybody says that immediately without thinking. When everyone (laughs) wants to go, I'm shit. I hate COVID. I hate lockdowns. Life is crap. Um, Anyway. Still, but we all go, yeah, I'm great, thanks. How yeah, are you? we're talking about we're interesting British. stuff. It's yeah. all good, it's all good. It's yeah. not Brexit, it's not COVID, we're all good. Yeah, because we are British, so we're like, oh yes, everything's wonderful. <laughs> right, okay. Talk us through Operation Sea Lion. What was it? <laughs> so, uh, this, so Operation Sea Lion was the German plan, in inverted commas, for, for invading the UK. And this is obviously what the auxiliary units and what the special duties branch who we're going to be talking about today was set up to, to, to resist. But sea line itself is, is a bit strange because it was classic Hitler, I'd say, because he had his three uh, armed forces, so Navy, Air Force, Army, all working on very separate plans. <laughs> um, no, no, no coordination uh, between the two as well. And it's that classic hit the thing of, of, of not of separating individuals so they didn't get didn't get too powerful. So this is um, um it's come up twice already now on History Hack. It was not a real plan, was no, it? No, and even I mean even he, he did his Führer Directive sixteen in sixteenth of July nineteen forty, something like that. But even the directive was basically he said, I've decided to prepare a, a landing operation, uh to, to land in England, and if necessary, carry it out. So even the directive wasn't like, we're going to do it. It was like, well, we'll see how it goes. And I feel like he was just, they had no idea about crossing the channel, really. I mean, Germany's, uh, you know, mainly rivers. That's what they've done up until now. They didn't, they didn't really take the channel very seriously. As I said, they had three competing uh, armed forces putting together different plans and arguing uh, about about the, whether, whether their individual plans could work. We had Goering, who 
basically said he could win it with the Air Force. And it, it, it was just, yeah. It was it's a typical a Nazi shit show, isn't oh, it? Was all, yeah, and uh, you know, you just get the impression that they they just presumed that we that, that Britain would surrender, that we we would see that we're in a, a position of, of no hope, and after France uh, after France surrendered, that the game was up. So they they just didn't bother. Although saying that, I mean, Admiral Raider started planning for a potential invasion of Britain back in, like, autumn 1939 when Hitler was first talking about invading the West. So from the naval perspective, they started thinking about it. Um, but, yeah, n- nothing concrete was ever really put together. They trained. Uh, they did lots of training. Uh, soldiers trained in, in these flat-bottom craft that were going to come across. But there was no real... No real plan to, 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 to really get across with, that, that would be anywhere near effectively. The only thing they, the only thing all three uncles had in common, the only consensus they had was that the RAF had to be defeated before anything could be uh, considered. Um, but even then, you know, even then we had, you know, we've got the best Navy in the, in the world and the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, had taken a hell of a beating in Norway. So, Phil Weir talked about it as well, and he um, he just said the German naval force is it's never going to never going to win. No, but all of that being said, of course, uh, we well saying that I feel like Churchill, in the back of his mind, didn't think they would invade. But yeah, but then how silly would you look if they suddenly did? Well, correct. And actually, you know, and people talk about this that 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 by the end of nineteen forty that the you know, the threat was more or less gone. But actually, if if, if uh, Barbarossa had gone well and, and they'd knocked the Soviet Union out, then they'd come, you know, straight back in with a full force and, and, and invaded us then. So uh, the threat was, was continued. And as long as the threat was there, the need to have some kind of formations in place that could resist or hold up a, an invading army were, were, was important. And hence why both the auxiliary units and special duties carried on all the way through till till 44. Well, Britain must have been really happy by the end of 41 when Barbarossa was pretty much failing. They were like, yep, this is going to be a breeze. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, but so by the end of 41, Barbarossa was failing. The Japanese attacked, well, just yesterday, uh, attacked uh, Pearl Harbor and uh, suddenly the US uh, was on our side and suddenly Germany was facing Russia, us and the US, you know, by the end of forty one, I think I think we were we were in a in a better place, certainly. So tell us, what was the special duties branch? So the special duties branch comes out so as you as you might remember as we talked about last time with the auxiliary units, the auxiliary units came from two areas. One was the military intelligence research with, with Peter Fleming and his guys in, in Kent. And the other area was from SIS, so MI6. Um, and their home defence scheme, where you might remember they were just going around planting explosives and bridges and stuff without telling anyone. But there was another section to uh, the home defence scheme, which was the intelligence gathering side, which is much more in line with, obviously, what SIS is all about. And this intelligence gathering side was transferred at the same time as the uh, blowing stuff up side uh, to, to Colonel Gubbins, uh, and the auxiliary units. So there was two separate branches and they were kept separate as well. Um, so, so they were two separate organisations but run from 
by, by Gubbins to start with in, in 1940. And it was this intelligence side that eventually became the special duties branch. Um, and it was essentially civilian spies or observers, as they were called, um, and wireless operators who would have spied on the German army as they came through their town or village, taking notes of vehicles and numbers and weapons, etc., and then passing on that, that information. And it's, it's all about trying to ensure that we weren't in a situation as, as in what, what happened in France during the Blitzkrieg or in the Low Countries, where the German army is kind of rolling through unhindered, the the civilian population quite understandably were on the road trying to escape and, and, and flee but in, in doing so were kind of getting in the way huge amounts of confusion no idea what the germans were where they were going they would just appear and and the the, the idea behind special duties branch is that civilians would stay behind would stay put as the germans came through their town and then pass on that information so that the regular army had some idea of where the germans were in what numbers and what vehicles they had, um, so they they could they could either counterattack or, or or prepare for prepare for the invasion of, of the next area. So it's about taking away that uncertainty, that chaos that that we saw during the during the Blitzkrieg of nineteen forty. So who can be part of the special duties branch? What's the difference between the people that went into that and the people that went into the auxiliary units? Yeah, so the, the, the main difference is, so the auxiliary units were made up of men only uh, in occupied, uh, in reserved occupations, uh, usually kind of farmers and, and gamekeepers and people like that. And they were, as we talked about, trained to, in sabotage and guerrilla warfare and to, and to blow things up and to assassinate people when necessary. So it's cause chaos, basically. Correct, correct. Absolutely. Anything that held up the German army. Even for even for a couple of days, that that was that was their role. The special duties branch had nothing to do with explosives or, or, or guns. It was all about intelligence gathering, and it, the, they they set up in a very similar way to, to the auxiliary units. Intelligence officers who we know very little about um, were sent to the key counties again that were vulnerable to invasion, and they were there to find what they called key men. Um, so usually someone of some standing within a town or a village, like a doctor or a vicar or someone like that. Uh, and then these key men would then, um, recruit, uh, observers and, and runners. So these were people, these were not, uh, men of, of, of call up age. These were people who could easily walk around their town and village as the Germans passed through without attracting attention. So you wouldn't want a 35 year old farmer looking at the Germans. You'd want a doddery old lady. Correct. You want a doddery old lady. You want a vicar. You'd want a doctor. You want I'd be gutted if I got recruited and then they sent me to the auxiliaries and not the blowing stuff up branch. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. You would be, you would be a bit, wouldn't you? But yeah. this is, this is so, so they recruited everyone from like, as I said, vicars, doctors, teenagers. So like, 15, 16 year old kids were recruited. Sorry, trained. Alex, you're out. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> done. <laughs> trained in, in, in recognizing, uh, these German formations and vehicles and, uh, 
putting down what they'd seen in code in messages, putting it in dead letter drops, which we can talk about a bit later. Then a large number of runners and messengers would pick up these messages from, from various drops and pass them on to civilian wireless operators uh, who had wireless sets. So, we, you know, these key men would have like Vickers. We've got examples of Vickers. We know they had their wireless sets in their pulpit or uh, a publican uh, whose wireless set was up in the roof of the pub. Or uh, we've got farmers whose wireless sets were in chicken sheds, um, like disguised chicken sheds. So you'd look in the chicken shed and all you'd see, obviously, are chickens feeding all that kind of stuff. But there was a disguised um, end of the shed where the wireless set was, where they, where they could be... Um, they could be communicating and and like the auction units it was highly highly secret so they all signed the official secrets act again so they didn't tell anyone and it was so secret so the using the chicken shed example um there was a chap in kent or essex essex i think who uh had one of those places no one, one of those one of those ones uh, <laughs> one of those really covidy places yeah <laughs> yeah he had his he had his radio set in his chicken shed and uh, one day he was kind of walking out there to do some do some training, and he saw a, a soldier with a big radio mast on his on his on his back and, and radio set from the Royal Corps of Signals. And he basically went up to this soldier and said, well, "Can I help you?" And he said, "Yeah, we've been getting these weird um, wireless messages we've we've picked up. We can't work out where they're from or, or who they're from. We've, you know, and obviously their automatic assumption was that it was a, a German spy um, communicating back uh, back to Germany." Um, so even the Royal Corps of Signals had no idea about the Special Duties Branch because this guy was like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely, uh, definitely let you know if I hear anything. Uh, and then managed to persuade the, the Royal Corps of Signals guys to, to disappear. And then he went to his chicken shed and started communicating again with his, <laughs> on his wireless set. So, the, you know, the levels of secrecy were, were, again, really, really high. And if anything, higher than the auxiliary units. So by, by, the, by stand down, by 1944... They think there are around 233 wireless stations across the UK and around about 3,250 members of the special duties branch. And we know virtually, I mean, we're talking tens of people that, that we know were, were in it. Most people didn't say anything and, and went to the grave without saying anything. So the, the levels of secrecy and the way they kept it secret was, was remarkable. It's the same as the auxiliary units that you were talking about last time. They went literally went to the grave and not talked about it at all. Yeah, but from the one guy that wrote a book and everyone else was like, "Dude, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. what the hell?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, oh, did, was it like? Do you remember the the Moody Post woman that you had to go and give the code to? Yeah, the auxiliary yeah. units. Is there stuff like that going on? I feel the... like there definitely was. So, for example, um, so a lot of the information we get about around special duties is uh rumors and like folklore and we have to try and dig out what was what was the truth so for example uh there's a village in in east devon uh called clisson mary and we know that there was a civilian wireless set somewhere in that area and uh i was doing a talk the other day and someone came up to me and he said oh you know talking about special duties there was always a rumor about the spies at the monsters in or the monsters arms in Clifton Mary and this you know this apparently this elderly uh landlady uh who who you know wasn't uh particularly uh 
pleasant to her to her to her patrons <laughs> were was actually had a wireless set in the, in her loft which she was and she was part of this network of of um of of, of spies and, and and wireless operators passing information on how the germans invaded so if the german army had gone through Clissant Mary or, or an area around them, a message would eventually have got back to her and she would have sent this on to, as we'll talk about later, to, to ATS girls uh, who are in secret bunkers, uh, like the ones that the auxiliary units were in. So there's this whole network of, of civilians, highly, highly trained civilians, prepared. And again, like the auxiliary units, these guys were under no... They they knew that if they were caught they were they were they, they were gone, um, yeah. and they were very willing to to, to make that that sacrifice. Um, but just the most remarkable people who who have and special duties more than auxiliaries have had virtually no public recognition at all. You hard. said highly trained civilians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk us through their training. So it's a bit different to uh, the auxiliaries. So that, as far as we know, there was a um, there was a headquarters near Coles Hill House, which was the headquarters of the auxiliary units. I think it's called Hannington Hall uh, near Swindon. But as far as we know, there weren't like guys turning up there for, for training. We, we've spoken to um, a uh, observer, a spy, who was a teenage girl at the time, who said that she had loads of pamphlets, which she had to learn by heart, which included different formations and insignia of the of the German army and what the vehicles looked like and everything like that. And she had to um, she had to learn that by heart. And she carried it around in her in, <laughs> as she was learning it. She carried it around in her bra, uh, so no one, <laughs> no one would spot it. Um, but if if the Germans had invaded, then she would have to have you know destroyed those leaflets immediately. But a lot of it was on the civilians to train themselves. So they were provided with with the the literature and the and and the information, but they had to train themselves. In terms of the civilian wireless operators, Colonel Gubbins set up a um, auxiliary unit signals group, which were mainly either guys who were already in the Royal Corps of Signals or like radio enthusiasts, um, who before the war were like radio hams, uh, to go around and set up these wireless sets for civilians and train them on on how to use them um and you know these wireless sets could be as i said anywhere anywhere from a from a from a church to a to a uh, to a pub there's an example um where one chap had a bunker dug underneath his outside toilet uh where he would where he would be sending messages from so and in and in the hedgerow outside the outside toilet there was a um what looked like a, a tree stump, but actually the top half swiveled round and the messenger could place the message that they had in a kind of split tennis ball uh, and then push the tennis ball down this, down this uh, disguised um, tree stump and it would make its way down to this uh, underground bunker and then he would transmit the, the information onto the, onto the ATS girls. So absolutely again, love that. I know, and just think like so. A German patrol would come along; they'd heard room, you know, might have heard rumours about wireless, but and they look inside this outside toilet, and they wouldn't see anything. It'd just be a normal outside toilet. What you have to do to lift up the outside toilet is there's like a little water mains um, 
area outside, which you can lift up the lid and there's a key, you turn the key and suddenly you can lift up the whole of the toilet system and underneath there's a ladder going down uh, into the chamber. And even once you're in that chamber, there's nothing there. It just looks like a weird disguised like air raid shelter. Yeah. There's a hook, a clothes hook, which you turn on a shelf and that opens up a false wall and it's there is, is the wireless set. So even if the Germans had gained entry somehow into this bunker underneath an outside toilet, he, the, the, the wireless operator could continue sending messages uh, right until the last moment. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's, that's what they're all prepared for. But the levels of ingenuity were ridiculous. As, as amazing. <laughs> where, where does the aerial go? So the aerial, so the aerials for the, so they're called outstations and sub outstations, the civilian ones. They were usually up trees. Um, so, or, or in the case of a church, up, 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 up the, up the tower. But the way they disguised the aerial, they, they'd put it in the grooves of the tree. So you couldn't see it unless you look really, really closely. Um, and there's still some examples of where we know there was a, a civilian outstation and you can still see the, the aerial wire going up the tree because it's, you know, it's, it's glued in and attached. And that's what these signal guys did. They went round to these key areas, uh, to these key men and set up these radio stations for them and placed the aerials, um, replaced batteries on radio, taught them how to use these, 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 these sets. And all of this uh, goes against that, and the auxiliary units, goes against that view of Britain in 1940 of, um, of, of a country on its knees, of, of, of you know, organised chaos uh, everywhere. Th- these guys were hugely organised and, and, and very well prepared. And I think, you know, that, uh, we've spoken to Alan Allport or, or read his book, and he talks about that Shire folk um, uh, mentality that the people have of Britain in 1940 of kind of making do and, and just getting through by the skin of their teeth. It's, it, it isn't that it's, it's hugely organized uh, and, 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 and very sophisticated. Um, and, and because we had time to prepare, like we said last time, Poland didn't have any time to prepare. Um, although interestingly, Colonel, Colonel Govins, who set up the auxiliary units was in Warsaw just as the Germans invaded to try and help the Polish set up some kind of resistance force. He just got there too late. Um, so he had to come back. But uh, we had time to prepare all this stuff because, because of the channel and because of Operation Sea Lion being a bit of a mess. We had time to, to prepare this stuff, and, and, and we did so really, really effectively. That's amazing. Um, I want us to replicate one of those, Alex. Can we do that? Yeah, let's do it. We'll build it. Well, can't, yeah. we, can't we just do the oh but we're only girls and get a bloke to build it while we film it or something exactly <laughs> perfect idea love andrew will build it he loves this stuff <laughs> yeah you ask my wife about whether i can do diy you will do <laughs> <laughs> that is a definite no definitely you've got no. some friends they can help yeah that's true I we must know some manly men obviously <laughs> not wow guy walters do you remember the what the uh window washing no the land lawnmower and zach no with the washing machine yeah no this would like to think he's manly but he'd be rubbish as well (laughs) so he just flat out tell you he spent his entire life at a desk and is incapable uh hint hint oh lucky's a good one he's tall and manly 
but he can, can lift stuff at the very least because he's a giant. That's true. That's very true. Clive would just be like a foreman, I feel, telling them what they're doing wrong. Yes, but but he's a gentleman of uh, a slightly advanced age. Yeah, I'd feel guilty making him carry stuff around. We'll give it to Lockie. Exactly. Anyway, now that we've seized on everyone down the pub and press ganged them into this. uh... (laughs) Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What was expected of these people if Britain was invaded? You kind of, I think you've more or less answered that um, in that they were expected to die if necessary. Yeah, yeah, essentially. They, as I said, they were going to stay put. They weren't going to get on the roads and flee. They were going to stay put in their towns and villages. They were going to wait for the Germans to go through. And the observers would write down what they're seeing in code in, in, in on paper and you know we spoke we spoke to a a lady the other day whose dad she didn't know what he did but all she knew was he was trained to go and pick up messages put the message under his tongue uh walk up to a a, a big house in the village and pass the message on that's all she knew he did she had he had, he had she had no idea what that it was to do with a special duties branch. But that was it. You have the observers observing the, the German army coming through. You, the message would then be passed through these dead letter drops. So these were disguised um, areas where the message could be hidden and the observer would then pick it up. So it could be like a hollow key. So we've got examples of where you could unscrew the top of these kind of big keys that would be left in a, in a door and the message would be pushed in there. There's an example of a gate farm gate with a horseshoe on if the horseshoe is the right way up uh there's no message if it's upside down there's a message and the message is contained in a fake gate bolt which you can pull out uh, and the message is inside there so the messengers would then pick up this information pass it to other messages messengers through this dead letter drops and it would eventually end up with one of these civilian uh, wireless operators at an out station and the civilian wireless operator would then pass this message through. They didn't know who they were passing it to. All they got back was a message saying message received, but they were passing it to these ATS women uh, who were in secret bunkers, disguised bunkers um, across the country again, uh, who would then uh, themselves radio the message through to the, through to army command. So they'd have a, 
much better picture of what the of what the German army were up to and where they were. And it, it'd be, you know, quite quick. To start with, it was all just done by word of mouth. But by the end of 1940, the civilians were given these wireless sets. So the, it was really, really quick. So within, within, you know, a couple of hours, the message had passed on that the Germans were in this village at this time, heading in this direction with this many vehicles with these many weapons. So the you know HQ would have a much better idea of what was going on, would have a, have a, a a bigger picture. And the ATS women are you know they're remarkable. So even though they you know they're they're not civilians, they were recruited. They're either already part of the ATS, or they were recruited through that kind of friends and family um, network. And the the woman who headed it up was a lady called Beatrice Temple, who was. Uh, the niece of the then Archbishop of Canterbury. So another great story. And she would, uh, these women would be asked whether they'd want to be doing something possibly a bit dangerous, a bit interesting. They would go and be interviewed by Beatrice and she'd be listening to their voice, whether they had a clear um, radio voice, something that could be understood over, over wireless. And the first interview would take place in the public lounge of the fourth floor of Harrods. <laughs> this, was, this, was the, this was the first interview that these, and these women had no idea what they were signing up to. And there were multiple interviews. And it wasn't until like the fifth or sixth interview where they would be then say, okay, uh, sign official secrets act. Here's what you're going to be doing. And if they would be told then, you know, if the Germans invade, you have to go to your secret underground bunker wait for messages to come through from these civilians and then radio them on to, for, to, to command. And, you know, the, they spent, you know, they, once they'd gone to ground, unlike the auxiliary units, they wouldn't be coming outside again. Yeah. And once they're in their bunker, they were there and they had enough rations for three weeks to stay underground uh, and pass on messages. And again, you know, it's that thing of, of you know, three weeks is, is likely to be it. The Germans would have, would have found it. And interestingly, there was no, as I said before, there was no uh, connection between the auxiliary units and the special duties branch, especially in those, in those early days. So even though the information that the special duties guys were collecting could have been really useful to the auxiliary units, they had no idea about each other, even though they were all in the same counties. And quite often, their various bunkers were quite close to each other. There's a really good exception to this story um, where an auxiliary was on patrol, he was walking around his local area, and he came across an entrance to what he recognised as a bunker, uh, very similar to the one he was based in. And he was like, well, this is a bit weird, because this is quite close to mine. There probably isn't another patrol around here. I'd better investigate it. So he opened the hatch, went down the ladder, and was confronted at the bottom by an ATS girl pointing a gun at his head, uh, saying, (laughs) what the hell? So basically, the ATS girl, all she knew was this guy coming down uh, in Denham's, uh, heavily armed. Uh, he discovered a bunker he didn't know what it was about. They didn't know about each other at all. Mm. She was pointing a gun at his head. Eventually, they kind of came to agreement that neither were German spies, and they were, you know, quite all right. <laughs> there needed uh, to be a safe word or something. Yeah, correct. Well, the, the most remarkable about part of this story is uh, they later got married. I mean, what? <laughs> I love I visions of them standing there screaming at each other, like, Marmite, Marmite, yeah. it's okay. 
I know, but they got married. I mean, how? What a way to meet your partner. I mean, that's that's I love that story. That, do you know what? That's oddly romantic, isn't it? Isn't it? But I guess the the other thing is because they both signed the official secrets act. When people ask, "Well, how did you meet?" They couldn't. Starbucks. <laughs> It'll be like all those Online. people that meet on Tinder, and yeah. they go, uh, if anyone asks, we met in Starbucks. I know. How funny! Yeah. Just remarkable, <laughs> isn't it? Just remarkable. And actually, their son. Walk. Their, their yeah. son uh, later marched with us past the Spencer. Um, representing both both branches, but just yeah, but the, so there's no there's no uh, connection between the two. But very similarly, special duty. Everyone involved in special duties recognised the fact that this was a suicide mission. Recognised that it was only going to be for a set amount of time. Again, it's not there for after occupation. This isn't the French Resistance. This is passing on information about an invading army, about an active invading army, and giving the regular forces a chance to group where they know they can attack because they know exactly where they're going, which direction the army's going and, and what they have with them. Germany doesn't evade, clearly. So how do these guys contribute to the war effort? It's interesting because so the, the auxiliary units, lots, lots, some recruited into the SOS, SAS and SOE um, so may, and their training obviously came in handy and they could make a, a real contribution, a tangible contribution to the, to the war effort. The special duties were slightly different. I mean, the, 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 they couldn't do anything active in terms of being recruited into the regular forces. In fact, the ATS women at the stand down, it was really hard for them to get another job within the ATS because they weren't regular ATS uh, soldiers. They'd not been trained in the same way. So most of them just at stand down kind of just, just left. But what they did, and there's a rumour of something they did do, is that during um, the lead-up to, to D-Day, during Operation Fortitude, which was the, um, the operation to deceive the Germans into thinking that there was invading army uh, across the channel at Calais, or to invade Calais, and there's one in Scotland to, to invade Norway, to take the heat off, off Normandy. There's a rumour that special duties were given new radio sets, uh, and they basically told to broadcast any old rubbish that came into their head <laughs> across across open channels to persuade the German army that there was a there was an army group ready to invade across uh, to Calais. So they, there's a rumour they were part of Operation Fortitude. There's not absolute proof that this happened, uh, but it, it seems like it would have been a really good use of their expertise. Um, and that was certainly something that... that that at least one author has said uh, uh, happened. So that was quite interesting that they were picked for this very specific mission using their, using their radio skills. But other than that, it was quite difficult for them to be transferred to other areas because they were so specially trained um, in, 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 what, in what they were doing. So it was, it was hard for them to contribute wider. But that's certainly one area which, which, uh, which they were apparently used, which was Operation Fortitude, which again was hugely successful because Hitler kept divisions and divisions in, in, in the Pays de Calais waiting for the, the real invasion to come across. How many of them have you actually been able to speak to? As I said, like, very few, really. There was a, um, there was a guy called uh, Arthur Gabitas, who was a sergeant in this signals corps, uh, who, who, who spoke to, to people, and he was quite helpful in providing some some maps of where each of these networks were 
Um, there was Beatrice Temple, rather illegally, I suspect, kept a diary. Uh, so we have her some some transcripts of her and her job in terms of going round to these ATS women all over the country and just making sure they were they were they're okay. Because once they were assigned to a to a to a bunker or to a, to a county. There was like no daily checks. We've, there's one example of an ATS girl committing suicide in a bunker just because it was just, you know, you know, spending days underground in this dank darkness um, was just depressing and, 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 and horrible. And so, so it was really, really quite tough. But, but Beatrice Temple had this diary which recorded bits. But in terms of civilians, as I said, hardly anything. There's one or two. Uh, there's the, the the lady who was a teenager at the time who was recruited as an observer. Her dad was a, a key man, so one of the wireless operators. Um, but other than that, we have virtually nothing. And again, it's it, they just, at stand down or at the end of the war, because they hadn't done anything, they weren't, uh, they weren't called into action. Most of them just kind of disappeared into the into daily life and and and, and got on with it and uh and so we have hard, hardly any uh first hand recruit especially from like the mess so the the messengers the runners the guys who took message from dead dead letter drop to dead letter drop we've, i mean there's virtually i'd say like ones and twos that have actually spoken about it most of what we get are Oh, there was that rumor of these guys who would run around with messages and, or, you know, the spies in the Molster's arms example. That's the type of thing that we get the point towards, uh, what the special duties were, were, were up to, but, but virtually nothing. Of course, we've got, uh, the, uh, remains sometimes of these bunkers that the ATS women were in, uh, like the auxiliary units bunkers. Um, so we, we, we find them and they're often on high ground kind of, uh, in the area where they'd be receiving the messages from the civilian wireless operators. So we have, we have the remains of these bunkers. Um, we occasionally, like the, uh, we occasionally find the area of where a civilian had their wireless set. So like that bunker under the outside toilets. Um, but very, very, very little. I mean, the way they kept the secret is just remarkable. I mean, 3,250 at least people were involved in this. And, you know, up until relatively recently, nothing was known about this at all. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this virtually unknown part of history. I mean, I didn't know about it. Alex didn't know about it. And it's just amazing that you've been able to come on board and tell us a little bit more of what we do know. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Look, if anyone out there has any information or knows of rumours around their village of, of, of spies or people acting a bit weirdly during the war, then please get in touch because, you know, the more information we gather on these guys, the, the better because it's absolutely, we think, really, really important that these guys get the recognition, even though most of them are dead, get the recognition that they deserve for the sacrifice that they were willing to make had Operation Sea Lion uh, happened. Join us tomorrow when Carolyn Willikes will be with us to talk all about horses in the ancient world. A bit of mistbusting going on here um, and a bit of setting the record straight from terrible films like Alexander and telling you exactly how and when we started uh, our human horsey relationship and how it evolved in the ancient world. So don't miss that. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon 
as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. The incentives for joining on either of those platforms, we're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.